Like, and I, I want to make a very sharp distinction between empires and imperialism. Like, when I mean empires, I mean like stuff like, you know, like uh, the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, which are like multi-ethnic and like multinational uh, empires, where like you have to be woke, you know? You understand? It's like, it's like Tito's, like... Or, or like the USSR was, within like those constructs, you have to be woke. Whereas in the nation state, you can be a fascist. You cannot be a fascist in a multi-ethnic empire. I, that's interesting because when people talk about America, they rarely refer to it as the American state. They refer to it as the American empire. Yeah, but America is not a nation state in the sense that France or like Germany is a nation state. No, yeah, 100%. Well, that's what I feel like is interesting about it. And I like what you said about Whitman, and I love Whitman too, uh, in that this idea that anywhere can be America. And this is why I sort of love that flag, that infinite, there's like an infinity America flag that I saw on Twitter, where it's like, that uh it is a kind of like it's like a mobius stripe of stars and stripes that just sort of like expand and contract in into each other it's like oh that's true deconstructed america like that i don't know like to me like the aether i love deleuze's essay on on desert islands that to me is a kind of mentality that i sort of like that essay in particular has been sort of like my guiding light of principle just in the way that I view things for, I guess you could almost say like a year now, you know, and that when you actually desert a place and you inhabit an, another place, what you're desert doing is as you inhabit that space, you're deserting that space more by going there. You know, so it's a kind of inversion of this notion of like uh, colonization is that when you take something that is not imperial, that is other and you put it in the space that is already existing, what you're doing is you're not populating the space. You're making it more deserted. He says where women can be goddesses, men can be can exist as gods. You know, he makes allusions to Easter Island heads because there is a kind of, you know, when you when you break off from that territory, you you have the pot you you actually inhabit something called possibility. 
you can't inhabit possibility if the space is already blown out. You know, it's like you go to like Williamsburg in New York. If you go to Williamsburg, that's not a deserted space. That's not a deserted space you're occupying. You're merely just another body within the kind of like uh, congeniality of fucking social uh, simulated social relations based on experiential uh, necessary like need for like capital and money and whatnot and whatever. That's why you like when you go to New York, like your network is your greatest asset. It's the only thing that ins- ensures your survival, which I feel like is strange and regressive because haven't we already established that so- like society doesn't exist? Sociology was established in modernity because we had this concept of society that was arising. Now, we're already so far beyond that moment. That's kind of why when I look at this clout stuff, I'm like, there's no possibility here. Like, where it, where is it? You know? Sorry, that was stupid and crazy. <laughs> but no, I think that's like in the spirit of like nomadology, right? Like, like you know, uh, you bring up the notion of like islands and it's, it's also like encoded in like a thousand plateaus, which is like, how did you make yourself a body without organs, which is um you know you get a you get a piece here and there um and it's directly tied to like the like a lot of like um uh, what is it called references to like difference and repetition which is um you know the whole vision of uh the eternal return or the eternal eternal recurrence which is um something that i've been like thinking about slash wanting to write about which is uh possibility in itself uh, as opposed to possibility for itself which i think a lot of people get hung up on this like notion of like um you know how how can we how can we posit or how can we create the conditions for possibility which is like a really like if you think about it like libertarian mindset which is how can we create a structure uh like a libertarian state which it's it's kind of like a uh, nozick's notion of utopia which is like how can we create this like meta structure that kind of sets up the conditions for what by which we can all kind of like propagate or or create our own little islands um, when in reality it should be possibility uh, for uh, possibility in itself, which is um, the eternal recurrence, which is the return of difference in itself, like always becoming, um, you know, it's like the notion of like, why does Oedipus blind himself when he learns about um, his um, his past, you know, about the, tra- the transgressions that he did, um, which is that in by blinding himself, uh, Yes, there there maintains a there something about Oedipus stays the same, but it's like this radical change, this radical becoming. By when he blinds himself, it's like this new identity. It's this new Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Because he actually was blind before. That's like what the text says, which is like so fucking good. It's like Oedipus was blind to the gods basically and like when he blinds himself is when he becomes like after that like a like literally a almost like and like he's driven out of the city but like after that like he comes back later on as like this old man but now he's like this hallowed person and like he walks into colonus and the earth just opens up and swallows him and like basically everything turns out right in the end like, because he starts from, like, this pure state of unholiness and, like, degradation 
and at like the end he, he like integrates the exact opposite like which is pure holiness and then descends back into the ground it's like really fucking powerful i think that's like the beauty of like all of like the the greek hero myths which is like the the individual who you know like you said the the homo soccer which is uh, in the at least in the greek myth is always that person that starts like impious or or like the individual who has the most transgressions and they become the very way by which uh for example i think like he goes to thieves right and they and then he what does he do he i don't know if he he like liberates them from the sphinx and then that's how they there's like a that's how they stop the plague um i think that's what happens it's really it's 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 a really subtle thing because he basically gets he gets the the sphinx like and he says i got he says everyone around me like everyone in the city was trying to solve the riddle but they couldn't do it because they were trying to listen to the gods and they were trying to get the, their information from the gods or from birds and he says but i Oedipus, i show i showed up trusting only in myself and my reason and like for that reason i didn't care about the gods and i killed the sphinx and then i became king and that's actually like from the start there's something very unholy very like like there, there's some kind of like profanation inherent in the figure of Oedipus, which is that he doesn't respect mm-hmm. the divine order and he basically makes it submit to human reason, even while he's dealing within a space that is outside of human reason. He's doing what Kant would call like transcendence. He's like using reason outside of the boundaries of reason. Yeah, I think that's why like a lot of like the Promethean um, projects, I don't think they're like actually like Promethean like they espouse because they always like confine themselves to the, you know, they say they're going outside the bounds of reason, but what really they're doing is they're like ontologizing the actual boundaries of reason and then kind of, and then kind of like encoding themselves within that structure and then saying like, okay, well, this is our little playground. Uh, This is what we can actually do within quote unquote the bounds of reason and and I like I like how you put it which is it's we we have to use reason outside of like on the outside like it out like beyond beyond the bounds beyond the faculty of reason itself in a way yeah but that's that's like that's highly problematic because like I we say we have to and Kant himself says we have it's like if we have no choice when we proceed from metaphysics to nature which means when we proceed from the transcendental to nature, we get we have no choice but get carried away into hyper nature, which is like what is beyond reason. And basically, Schelling has that same thing about Kant. Mm. Where he says like, if you say like, there's this space of reason, and then there's this space of non-reason, and you say I will close reason upon itself over the space of reason, and like, if you actually do that, which is what the critical project does, then Schilling says, like, well, in that case, the the content of reason turns out to be the overthrowing of reason, 
because there is no rational reason for reason to limit itself. So like reason is rationally forced to overthrow itself as unreason if you like stick within the critical project. That's why you have to, as Kant says, like there's, the, that's why there's a transition outside of the critical, not outside, but there's a, a transition of the critical project, which is like through the ether. Literally. I think that's right. what, that's what people don't understand about like when Kant's, uh, Kant says that his project is to protect faith, which is, or like fideism. Um, I mean, I mean, it's pretty clear to me, at least, at least how I'm interpreting it, which is that there is a strong aspect of faith, maybe not faith in like a God, for example, um, which I don't think that he's not leaving room for something like that, but it's a fideism in terms of like the, like the overturn, the overturning in itself like the space for the overturning in itself, there is a faith to that, that the, that the system itself, uh, the, the system itself has to by almost like an eschatology, it has to overcode itself. Yeah. It's, it's like faith in practical reason, basically, because like practical reason is where you get the object of faith. Like, and like that turns out to be nothing but freedom. If you actually think like, very closely about like the content of, of critical of practical reason for Kant, like in the very late Kant, it turns out like it's literally divide. Like practical reason is literally God for Kant. And you understand that like critical reason is just this pure freedom and it has a primacy over speculative reason. Which means that like for Kant, freedom is more important than like the pure reason of the first critique. Mm -hmm. are, are either of you, do you know about the Schelling Eschenmeyer controversy of 1801? Uh, yeah. Adam Carl August Eschenmeyer. Uh, he actually, he was a physician who engaged in a three sort of series attack on Schelling's notion of an absolute. And basically, he proposed an inverted Kantianism that was very influential on these kind of like neo-Gnostic people like Francois Lariel. But for him, his he claimed that God, because you know how like reason is, is synonymous with God in the Kantian sense, he basically said that there was something apart from that, like a pure sort of ether. Uh, that can't be reached by intellectual effort or communion at, at all. So he, uh, you know, he was very interested in like these concepts of like animal magnetism, uh, supernaturalism. He was kind of a precursor, you could say. But through his criticisms of Schelling, he helped Schelling sort of, uh, I guess you could say, concretize his ideas about um like the abstract the subject uh the arc of truth you know it's so it's it's i think it's really sort of interesting this idea you see it a bit with like uh felix uh Reveson, some of mm -hmm. his writings too uh where there's this basically like pure infinite plane of radical infinity or or finitude 
but there is this space that exists outside of the transcendental that can't even be qualified by reason itself. It's like a pure animal, animalistic intuition. You know, yeah. uh, Ravesan calls this of habit, uh, you know, on his writings about about what about the habit sort of being that like sublime uh, notion of that outside ether that we can't intuit through reason or consciousness itself. I always found that to be really sort of interesting because on one hand you could say, well, this is bullshit, you know, because it's, it's non, it's not quantifiable, but you could also say, well, like, what if it's true? You know, like what if, what if there is some truth to somebody like Ravesan, who is, who is very influential on Bergson as well. So I, I think about that sometimes too, and just the differences there. I don't know. I think yeah. there's like some cool over, I mean, I'm just pulling this out of my ass, like some good cool overlap with like, at least like orthodox, like theology, which is like, you know, this whole notion of the news, which is like the faculty by which we uh, come to know God. Um, but it's not like a reasonable faculty. It's not something like, uh, like the Thomistic view of like, um, you know, through through this um, through reasoning, we're able to come to the conclusion of uh, this divine supreme being, kind of like the uh, because you know of, of divine simplicity, we can we can rationally come to this uh, uncaused cause, which would be um, God. It's just that there is by revelation um, we come to know of the you know the <laughs> the triune God. Um, and we only have access to do that through like already in innate faculty of, of the noose. Um, obviously, you know, because of the fall that the noose becomes, um, corrupt and we, we don't actually have, um, a proper communion, but it, I like how you, how you mentioned, which it's, it's like this, um, um, how would I say it? it's like, it's like this faculty by which we're always trying to, um, come to an understanding of something which already escapes categorization, which I can see how that ties in with like Laurel, which is like this, this non-philosophy, but, um, I just, it seems interesting. Yeah. That's right. He says, uh, I don't know about him. He, it's like, I want to ask well. someone. Yeah. I, I, I <laughs> want to ask someone. I was like, is it like, like, I mean, what is the the kernel of actual good stuff in like La Ruelle that makes it worth for you to plod through all of like the bullshit and all of like the concepts and like literally the the unreadable writing and like the person said, yeah, there there's a kernel, but it's like the signal to noise ratio is extremely low in La Ruelle. <laughs> <laughs> the only person not... that i trust on like laurel is a good friend taylor atkins but i mean i i, I fucking hate i i've tried reading laurel and it's it's just it's, it's not so much that it's impenetrable it's just that i from what from what i've heard from at least what i what taylor has told me is just that the, a lot of the translations are just really bad yeah it's stuffy also it's like there's too many concepts that's kind of why I like it. Even though I don't like Jeremy R. Smith at all. He's like my op or whatever. 
Yeah, I guess you can have that many concepts. Like Kant has a lot of fucking concepts in in right. like the in, in the critique of pure reason, but it's set within like this extremely strict architectonic, which like mm-hmm. makes it not a, it's not like hard to read Kant because there's there's like a very clear architectonic to the work. But if you have like this toughy concept with like deconstructive style writing plus like the euphoria of Deleuze taken together it's just completely unreadable (laughs) yeah I think I think he borrows a little too much from um that deconstructionist writing like Derrida um I mean I mean Derrida too the way that he sometimes translated it's it's kind of poor um then he's just I don't know. Some some sometimes some of these writers aren't as as clear and, and obviously they obfuscate a lot of information um on purpose. Um that's the whole point, I guess, of their project. Yeah. But I mean I mean Derrida, I've never found Derrida to be like to be like people say he is. And he is. And my my interpretation would be that there's an American Derrida which is like an, a Derrida in translation, uh, and and that's like and basically the stylistic offshoot of the translations of like I I guess like I don't know which works of his would appear like that unreadable, but I know that he has that reputation in America. And I think it's just like it's the way like French theory is a strictly American thing. Like it has no existence outside of America as a concept. French theory, like I think it's within like French theory that there's unreadable stuff. Yeah, I think that's mostly because of like the the way that our education system works, which is like a lot of like the continental philosophy is found in English departments as opposed to the philosophy department um and i think that's just, yeah that's i think that's just a purely institutional thing um but i i mean i agree i think for example like even like the the Luz and guattari um i mean i think i think if you re- can read them in the original french a lot of the stuff or what they say makes more sense and sense again like in a particular sense if that makes sense uh sense in quotes um but like when you read like the american like the translation like i mean sometimes it's easier to read in my experience but you lose out on a lot of stuff that you would only get in the original french and that, that's true with any translation mm-hmm. i feel like it's so hard to also communicate these kind of internal systems because you know you brought up kant's uh, architectonic system and but at the same time for Kant like he prioritized architectonics like almost above everything else because for him it was like the basically like the highest form of human cognition is the ability to schematize and to systematize and so so it, it is kind of interesting though because I actually thought about this because I'm like at my parents' house and they have this book 
uh, called The Craft of Research. And it's like some standard like stock book on like how to sort of research a project and thinking about the kind of modalities in which research is presented today does not it, it's hard because it doesn't yield itself to either this like, you know, the initial like possibilities of research as this transcendental unity of a perception uh you know, incorporating these like, you know, very complex logical uh, functions of judgment and this like, as you say, like Laruelian post-structuralism. That's almost like when you read something like Celine with his like elliptical obsession, how it reads kind of like schizophrenic Twitter or something like that. There's like this really weird and you see this with like blue check journalists a lot you know the way that they sort of like or like health influencers the way that they like structure their tweets with like the spaces in between like there's something like deeply twisted and backwards about that to me (laughs) like i don't know like what is that like i don't understand why it's so perverse and gross to me but I don't know. It's weird. It's always been so. Like everyone, like, the moment that people started tweeting like that, everyone was like, why would you do that? Like, no, but because it was already called the Reddit spacing, you know? And then people started calling it like, w- w- like, and then like all the fucking, like all the fucking manosphere gurus started like, Doing it. If you read Henry Tate's tweets, he's like, I am in prison. Space. Like, he jumps a line. <laughs> Doing push-ups. Like, period. He jumps a line. Do you understand? And that's the tweet, you know? But, like, the whole tweet is like, like, the way those people think is like, those, I think it comes from Nietzsche. I think really? Like, yeah, I think it's like the cadence. It's it, They want to sound like Nietzsche. Like, like it's with, a pseudo aphoristic uh, prose. Yeah. You know what? When Nietzsche says, "Like my sentence begins the suspension points," like, like Nietzsche's rhythm is a bit like that. You know? Like, suppose truth were a woman, what then? <laughs> no, no, if you get what I mean, he he has like some something of that rhythm. And I think that's what they're going for. I wonder how much of it is like that, um, like internalized, like, because I mean, Nietzsche, at least like to some degree was a little bit misogynistic, but like it was hyper, um, hyper emphasized by his sister's editing, at least like the super late Nietzsche. Um, Mm -hmm. So I wonder how much of it is, is, is that I feel like it has a very misogynistic cadence to it, at least. Because it's like very like Reddit. So it's also funny when he does it versus like when like Manosphere people. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's kind of like when Angles is being misogynistic. It's like there's something funny about it. You know what I mean? It's like so different now. I don't know what this like this. I don't know. I, I didn't I never heard about Reddit spacing. That's funny. I mean, it's like. It's like the opposite of the green text, right? You have the green text, which is like, which is like, you need to have like this logical connection 
like very like that's that's grasped like in like the flow of the sentences when you do green text but when you do reddit spacing it's about each sentence on its own you know what i mean it's like it's like each sentence is meant to be taken as like a sensation you know it's like i am in prison period i am doing push-ups like each one of them is like an impression you know like a sensation but like if you actually think about what that means it's like a marvel movie it's like it's like you know it's like you you have like this shot of iron man and like this other shot of spider it's like you know it it works by like by by basically I think we spoke about that, but like it's the analytic of movement, like it decomposes movement. And when you think about like what this a tweet like that, like I am in prison, I am doing push-ups. Do you understand? This is like <laughs> the analytic of sensation. I love that you bring this up because it's like you can you can see it in like how it kind of manifests itself across multiple things. Um, and at least how it, like how this manifested in like things like YouTube, for example, with fucking jump cuts. Jump yeah. cuts have nothing to do with how it tells a story. It has everything to do with, like you said, it's fucking sense impressions. If it can maximize affectivity um, and like emotion or emotiveness, that's that's its whole point. And in a way, that's what it's trying to like simulate. It's that the whole uh, notion of like affectivity. How can it be more like? these jump cuts like that's why I, I think like tiktok is like cinema it's like modern cinema yes kierkegaard was relentlessly negative but at the same time ironically humorous there is an odd juxtaposition of opposites in his writing and you would expect a man who is fervent in his religious belief and who thought that the rest of western culture had gone wrong because they had not maintained this pure fidelity to the gospel you would expect that he might have us a positive affirmative life-giving kind of stance towards the world no he is relentlessly caustic and he is one of the great critics in the history of the west he said that he described himself as a missionary. Right? Now, he lived all his life in Denmark, right? So the idea of being a, a missionary in a society that has had Christianity for a great many centuries and is one of the centers of Lutheranism is a very peculiar idea, but he said he thought it was necessary for us to bring Christianity to Christendom. And that's the kind of missionary that he was. He said, fine, I can be a missionary right here. I don't need to go to some place that hasn't heard of Christianity because none of you have. Yeah, I understand what you mean because if you think like about TikTok, about a TikTok like that, as like you know, just one movement, like a, a TikTok being one movement, that's just basically un, unlike a movie. You know, a movie you articulate all those movements, but at its most simple, a TikTok is like the first movies that they made where you had just a horse walking, you know, you know, like, no, but the first movies you would have, like, I don't know, like the shot of someone doing something 
because the movie was seen as a way to capture movement. It was not seen as a way to tell a story. And in a sense, at TikTok, that's exactly it. It's one movement. <laughs> and I think we see like basically a return to the basics of the moving image. Also, if you think about Avatar 2, you can like see it as a return of cinema to like the sense of wonder as like the main drive behind it. Whereas like, you know, millennial cinema and like a lot of like this, like most of the 20th century is spent thinking like cinema, not necessarily in terms of wonder, but like in all those different emotions and wonder is at the core of like a specific strain, I would say in like the history of cinema. And like, it's, it seems to be coming back. Hmm. This well, is what I, that's sorry. Just this, just, I wanted to bring up, this is what I, I hated about like the critique about like how jarring the frame, the change in frame rate was in avatar. Cause it, it was using, it was going from like 24, to 60 frames um and it's like dude who fucking cares like it's like really you're nitpicking frame rates like it's fucking the fact that they're using 60 fps for certain parts is like baroque as fuck it's baroque maxing <laughs> but it's it's a twofold it's like it's like he's taking cameron is taking the analytic of movement to a next level because the first, like, if you think of cinema as, like, the analytic of movement, that everything is set within the, the same framework, frame rate, like, which is unlike life, because, like, in the living realm, like, each thing has its own, like, literal, its own rhythm. And, like, cinema, this is, like, the delusion way to see it. Cinema is, like, an analytic of movement. It's, it has a single logic of movement for everything, which is the, the frame rate. If you view it like that, switching the frame rate, what does it mean? It means that it means that there's something more like fundamental than the analytic of movement that you are grasping within cinema as more fundamental than that. And what is that? When you see how the frame rate is used to switch, it's again like how he uses the frame rate switch. I mean, it's again it's to heighten a sensation, which means that sensation is like here, something that is felt as even deeper than pure movement as like the stuff of cinema. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think um, even with like, even with like the way that um, like, a, like an avatar, like uh, the scenes that are 60 frames per second, you can tell. Like, I'm not going to say, like, they're perfectly edited. He's not trying to even do that. The fact that there's 60 frames per second is, like you mentioned, it's because it's trying to... It, it's this, like... It's not so much like this... Like, cinema's stuck in this notion of, like, realism, which it's trying to replicate and tell a story and try to get as close to, uh, I guess, like, how humans um, perceive reality. But the fact that it goes up to 60 frames per, per second, there's, like, this like you said, this meta underlying structure, um, which is greater than even like perception, at least how like, you know, like cognitive perception. It's some, there's, there's this category that's higher, this meta category 
um which is why i mean i think that's why the 60 i mean for me the 60 frames per second worked yeah it worked so yeah. well because you saw i agree it. and it's it's also very interesting because it speaks to the human capacity uh you know you this is brought up a bit in epigenetics as well but like the ability to synthesize this you know through like neuroplasticity rates per second like there is a pushing of that like there are different generations especially younger generations who are more like apt at you know not noticing a, something like a 60 frame per second cut uh, you know and it's i think that it speaks more to like what is the person the age of the person who's like invoking this critique rather than you know the idea that somebody would do that from like you know like a shoot 'em up action game or something like a first person uh game i think that's very sort of interesting and i also love this that the, the thing you brought up about how you know uh cinema sort of replicating the social you see this through this kind of like discursive uh i don't know representational driven stuff that i think is garbage like white lotus and secession where it's basically like you know the internal biases of like an edgy like new york it girl podcast just replicated through film that's completely on demand you know it's not like when you saw something i think colombo was the first television show where each length was like feature length they were like an hour and a half long without commercials but also each episode started uh, completely independent like you didn't need a sort of primer from any previous episode they all started from the same sort of formula of like there's a murder that happens and this one-eyed guy has to go backwards and kind of like do his little thing uh, in order to solve it in reverse I think that there was something, you know, Baudrillard talked about this a lot and like the blurring of the distinction, especially in a place like California between the cinema and, and what's so cinematic about a place like the, the Southwest or the West in general. Yeah. And I, and I do think it's kind of, there is a kind of, there was a, and he actually lamented this quite a bit that, that eventually the discourse of the cinematic universe of the outside would be folded back into cinema itself. And not only would that not no longer take place within the cinema, within the theater, uh, but it would also, it would take place in your own home. And then that, that loop would, you know, continue into, and you see it played out, I think very explicitly today. Yeah, there's there's this thing that you should see. It's like this guy on TikTok, and he he's this French guy, and basically his gimmick is that he walks around like he is in sixty frame per second, <laughs> but like he actually has it down. He looks like he's a video game character in real life, and he does like all of this weird shit while just repeating like the same fucking lines. And like he would walk up to people and like always address. He's like a literal NPC in his body movements. <laughs> like he's in 60 FPS. It is like, and when you watch that, it it like 
fucks with your brain on such a deep level. <laughs> I think this is like one of those things where it's like how people like transition from dreaming like in in like muted colors to technicolor. It's like how how like these technology I think people have this like this understanding of like how perception works and where it's like there's, there's this baseline and it's like no it's this constant synthesis that occurs when we process when we actually do the thing that is perception and it's like how, you can reconfigure that you can actually change it and to some degree um yeah it's, it's how how much uh, available neuroplasticity you have but the fact that um you can have this guy that moves at 60 frames per second it's it's kind of like a mind fuck it's like you know it's like it's like how much how uh, it's like that niche nietzschean mantra it's like uh we still don't is it nietzschean or might be spinoza it's like we still don't know what the body can do well you didn't know that someone could like but he looks like you know he can stand up and he is like you know a loading screen you know when people you know like move but they're not moving and anyway Damn, we've been going for a while, but yeah, how are you guys feeling? <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I'm like a little bit tired, but I I could wrap it up soon. I feel like we got a lot in there. I, I'm almost like don't have anything. I've been this is my second day in a row podcasting, so I'm sort oh, yeah. of like a bit out of it. Yeah, I f- I feel you there. I'm I'm starting to feel the the haze the, the mind fog but i mean uh i mean it's whatever however you guys feel however the vibe is yeah i don't know i have a, a lot of stuff to do i i need like to clean the whole place i'm in oh uh, yeah because i'm moving out damn yeah, well at good least luck you, with you that. found a place yeah yeah it was like solved at the last minute anyway it's not of general interest. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's no. I, I'm interested in that. It's, but, yeah, no. It's, it's just like the landlord signed the lease or made it first, but like the guy who was taking care of the apartment ha- doesn't have it available until until June the first. So I was just like panic, panicking today. I was like, oh, shit, I have a month where I have to be somewhere but like it's also true oppression right there so yeah no for real it's like fucking landlords are the landlords are actually the fascists if you think about it yeah i think a lot of like what we've been discussing in a lot of the general climate of our time like especially political and like the anxieties of people have a lot to do with the housing crisis like i think it's oh, like yeah. the thing of our time like the main main event the main ongoing event because it's the financial crisis of 2008 was that right so like it it was based like on the housing bubble and what i mean is it seems that housing is like the problem of of our times yeah no, I mean it. It really is. I literally just bought a house, um, and it's like what I what I could afford compared to what my parents afforded. It's like where it's it's fucked. It's fucked up. 
it's like a lot of if you look at like reaction if, I, I think Ty Lee was talking about that saying like the the reactionary subcultures that you have like in New York are caused like well like you know the whole Times Square thing whatever those people like this stuff exists exists due to the housing crisis it's because only people who come from like rich parents who will pay them three thousand a month for an apartment those are the only people that are gonna be there so those people are like born reactionaries and like it's really like the cultural trends can really be caused by like reactionary trends in culture can be caused by housing by the fact that those people are supposed to be in a country but instead they're like in a city well, it's, I feel like it's kind of funny because all of those people were like Bernie socialists, which is why I've always said that socialism is inherently reactionary because this kind of like naive activism class could only really come about uh, through a kind of like pretentious, uh, you know, belief in one's capacity to... Uh, you know, I, we were going, we were talking about it earlier, and I, I should probably cut that out because I sounded really stupid. But there is this whole thing with like the activism class then becoming the reactionaries. You know, yeah. like that pipeline is very real, I think. But it's only because, like, you know, fascism, the roots of fascism come from people who have no vested interest in, like, you know, their activism. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's the problem. Like, bourgeois morality always comes from people who have no skin in the game. Who There there are no stakes for them. And so, to me, that whole sort of, like, Bernie Sanders leftist socialist, which is why I hate leftism so much, is because you cannot separate that pipeline. Like, yeah, it, it goes <laughs> straight into the salle and then straight right. into... And, and then straight into Mussolini, which is like, actually, there's this good take about Mussolini, which is like, Mussolini is basically a socialist, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he is like the philosophy of imminence with like Giovanni Gentile, those people. And basically, Mussolini, what happens is that the socialist struggle turns out not to work, not to work out for him and for him. And he gets resentful over that. And at that moment, he says, okay, thus, like, that means that the, like, the, like, the proletarian movement needs to revise its own content. Since, like, results are not derived, are not, like, happening now, it means that, the, like, that Marxism, or at least, like, socialism as the doctrine of the proletariat is incorrect and needs a revision which includes like a maximum of people in society and that's when you get fascist literally yeah. as class collaboration yeah it's like um at least like how fascism like originates in like the uh like in europe and, and stuff it's like it's always like a pop it's always like a populist party that appeals to the proletarian subjectivity and like weaponizes that but the people who actually believe they're fucking kool-aid as in like the, the actual fascists it's it's bourgeois it's like a bourgeois subjectivity like it has to be um 
because like fundamentally like a fascist project is is the uh, weaponization of the war machine in Deleuzian yeah. terms um and the only way that it can extrapolate or 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 um like it can the way that it, it seeks out to overcode the only way that it can do that is if it keeps finding w- resources to extrapolate and i mean obviously that's going to be directly tied to the um, proletarian but once that gets ru- run dry then it has to always seek out another that's why for example like at least how it manifested in nazi germany it's like the the ostracization of um the jewish subject not even like as not even like as like jew like jewish as like a it has to turn into like a jewish ethnicity right it had to go to uh this like darwinism because like this like um, like me- quote unquote metaphysical Jew- Jewishism, Jewishness wasn't enough. Yeah. yeah, but this is kind of why I feel like people had misdiagnosed the initial Trump movement uh, because it wasn't a weaponization of the war machine. It didn't. It there were some things about it that were actually very sort of progressive, and and you know, Baudrillard talked a little bit about this in 1978 in a standing in the shadows of the silent majority in that like the, the, the revolutionary act of the masses is the abstination of culture of any sort of culture of high, which he sort of deemed as like high culture. And so when you look at who sort of adopts high culture, it was traditionally this trope of like the hipster, right? The hipster got replaced by the algorithm which I don't think is a bad thing because hipsters were not particularly good at doing their jobs. Like they were not great content sorters for the rest of people, right? They were, they were pretty like, I'm glad hipsters are fucking dead. Uh, but now it's like, well, what is that? Where is that place that like, who can fulfill the role that the hipster promised? And it is that sort of person who is kind of like at the, at the forefront or the sort of vanguard of the wave who can progress beyond both the reaction and the stagnation. And that, and so it is really sort of weird to see that thing kind of be absorbed by the margins. Uh, and what I always said was you better watch out what happens. Like if Trump doesn't get reelected, you're going to see a real fascism coming from the right. I'm not talking like Joe Biden. I'm like in the fact it in Dime Square. Like because again it's like they don't have any skin in the game. Like they're gonna get power someday. And it will look like Nazism. I really do believe that. <laughs> yeah. If you look at the current wave of reaction in the United States, the thing about it it's that it's located at the state level, and especially within legislature, legislature right? It, it, it's a, it does not seem to, to be a, a popular like thing for elections. You don't win elections with like the completely unhinged culture stuff. Like people don't really buy into that shit. It's just too fucking insane. Like, <laughs> no, but seriously. Yeah, and, no, I know. A lot of it was like if you look at like pol- the, like the transphobic policies uh, that you have in, in in like most of the states right now. If you look at those, there's like no popular support for them. They're coming from like as you said, 
people who don't even know what it is. Like they don't even know what trans people are. They've probably never seen one in their lives. As you said, they have no skin in the game. And for them, it's like the pure pleasure of like transgression. Because Biden says trans people are good, you have to fucking hammer down on them. And and that's this fucking logic of transgression, which is becoming like so all pervading, not only in cultural discourse, but in actual legislature in the United States. Right. And in all the world. But you saw that people got really angry at Trump and his son as uh, like Donald Jr. because they basically said, oh, no, trans people are good. Uh, we're against the Budweiser boycott, blah, blah, blah. Like I'm liberal on the subject of trans. And then all of these people started attacking him, you know, like oh, people... He- yeah, but I mean, I mean, Trump—he—he—he—he's not an ideas guy. I mean, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he would ban like all like transition for people under the age of twenty-one, stuff like that, and like, and he would ban like gender theory from being taught in universities and and stuff like these completely like insane proposals. But like, it, he's not probably not gonna do any of that. But yeah. like, <laughs> he um. Or it will, Ron DeSantis will. Yeah, it will just get stuck in the courts. Yeah. But like, the problem of stuff getting stuck in the courts is that it keeps transferring power to like the judiciary. Mm-hmm. Like, and that is becoming endemic to American politics. For example, abortion—you had that like through the courts, and you lost it through the courts. Right. I think that's how like the. Just because I like the point that you brought up, how it's going towards the judiciary branch, which is I think that's something that like a a cyclical thing that happens in the United States, where it's like sometimes the executive branch, um, you know, obviously like in the 1940s, the executive branch got overloaded with power, um, and then I, I believe for like the last, uh, I would say probably from like the 1970s all the way up until like the 1990s, maybe early 2000s, then it was like the uh, legislative branch that seemed to be uh, overloaded with power and I feel like we've seen a paradigm shift uh, to the judiciary branch like the court systems are just fucking insane right now um, yeah. at, at state level it's not even the supreme court itself uh, the supreme court kind of just seems like the like the, <laughs> the executive level branch of like the you know at the federal level yeah but uh, the, the the fucking motions that they're the, the the way that Republicans or the conservatives were able to mobilize to get a case in the Texas Supreme Court to then create the conditions to overturn 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 uh, Roe v. Wade is fucking insane. Yeah, it's like there's a name for that. I forget what it is, but it's when you shoe someone only in order that it gets to like a court where there will be like a review of the legality. It's like you you don't even intend to win the case. It's just about taking it to like to higher courts. But like what I mean about the issue of the judiciary is like in the in the in in Canada, for example, the judiciary was used to pass measures that were of like public like genuine public interest that that were like actually good and that had little uh, popular support. You know, like more prog- 
progressive stuff that had no popular support in Canada was passed through the courts. But in the United States, in a sense, it's exactly the opposite. It's like, it's stuff that has no popular support and which is reactionary and which is being passed through courts. Hmm. I'm, I, I actually have to get going pretty soon. Sorry. Yeah. But uh, this this was great. Thank you guys. I, I really appreciate. It. I love everything both of you have to say. I it, it's really it's great to talk to people, you know who who I feel like have have actually good things, interesting things to say. Yeah, no, I'm really happy that we got together. Yeah, this was really enjoyable. Even though I'm still kind of like. My mental functions are like really low from long COVID. Do you guys have you guys? I had, I've had long COVID. It was so terrible. It like, was worse than having COVID. Like, yeah. Way worse. Like when I had COVID, I was like, oh, I have the flu. I'm like fucked up for four days. But like the long COVID side effects, it was like torture. Not being able to think or taste for that long, it was like really bad. I couldn't like read. For like a long time like i couldn't actually yeah. take the time to sit down and focus and make sense of what i was reading for a long time yeah that's what i have right now oh yeah that's not good sorry about that that's fine okay well bye everyone bye see you guys thank you hope you guys we'll talk soon hope you feel better okay. yeah feel better ulysses congratulations on the apartment Oh yeah. <laughs> Bye. See you guys. Bye.